out an email yesterday, so if you're planning to come, you can hit the um, uh, reply button there and register so we can have an accounting of who's coming to the to the meeting. And if you want to send us, if there's anything like uh, anything unusual, for example, I know there's one or two that are not going to camp out overnight, but they want to come out early for breakfast on Saturday morning and just be out there for the day on Saturday, then you can send in an email or or let's let us know so we can keep track of those kinds of things. Uh, but that's, the only thing that will prevent it is if the weather uh, today would have been a perfect day, absolutely perfect. If the weather gets wet, but um, hopefully that won't be the case. Also, a reminder of the garage sale for Camperete coming up on Saturday, May the third. And Jeff is here. How unusual. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Half the time when I make an announcement, he's in the kitchen getting ready or out in the hallway or something. So I just have to, <laughs> I have to keep him humble. He returns the favor. Okay. Um, one other thing, well, people are hooking up with their live stream. Well, I'll, I'll pray first and then we'll talk, talk about that in terms of the Q&A because we have, we've, we're going to continue that tonight. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can have the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity that we can come together this evening to study through the issues that you have revealed in your word, especially in relation to your plan and purposes for human history. Father, we pray that you may... You will help us to think clearly and precisely about what, what, you have reve- what you have revealed to us and that we might have a better understanding of the overall scope of biblical history and biblical truth that we might see the unique role that we play as believers in this church age. And we pray that you challenge us with what we study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we have things set up so that if you're live streaming and you have a question um, that comes up, you can ask that and that uh, on the news page, which is the same page you went to, excuse me, on the live streaming page, which is the same page you go to to connect for the live stream. There's a place where you can click if you have a question, type in your question and submit that. It pops up here and that question will be asked. Now, one of the questions that came up several times last week, and I want to address it one more time before we move forward, had to do with the definition. And I'm emphasizing 
the fact that a dispensation means an administration. Now, why do I do that? Because there are several of us who grew up hearing definitions based on Schofield's definition that starts off that a dispensation is a period of time. Even though it may include the idea of administration in there, it, it introduces the idea of administration as a secondary characteristic. The primary characteristic when you say something is X, that should be the primary thing. Now, the, if you look at the King James, which is the, about the only translation that used the English word dispensation, if you look at passages like Ephesians 1 uh, one ten, as we define this, it translated a Greek word, oikonomia, with the English word dispensation. So if we're going to define dispensation for all of us who are fans of the original language, then we have to start with what the Greek word means, not with a theolog- subsequent theological definition that's read into the Scripture. And there's reasons for this. So when we look at the Greek word, for example, on this first slide, I have uh, pasted in the three meanings given for economia in the Bauer-Danker uh, Arnton-Gingrich version. This is the third edition of the Arnton-Gingrich Greek lexicon. The three meanings listed for economia are responsibility of management or management, Second, a state of being arranged, an arrangement, an order, or a plan. Third, a program of instruction or training. Now, at the risk of overemphasizing my point, does anybody see a time word in those three meanings? No. We look at the Liddell Scott Jones Dictionary. The meaning of oikonomia is a management of a household or family, husbandry, thrift, second, generally direction, regulation, administration, third, arrangement, fourth, in Egypt, the office of a steward, oikonomos, fifth, stewardship, sixth, plan or dispensation, and seventh, in a bad sense, scheming. Again, time isn't part of the, of the denotation of this word. So the same thing in the uh, Abbott Smith lexicon. Now, the reason this is important is if you define dispensation as primarily a period of time, you don't include important factors that are related to stewardship. If you, if you emphasize the primary meaning as being an administration, then what you get with that word are aspects related to responsibility and accountability where we develop the fullness of our understanding of a dispensation related to these tests of revelation. If it's simply a period of time, you don't get those. You don't have a biblical exegetical foundation for bringing in those those important ideas, and that's what's significant when we look at an administration of God's plan for history. The emphasis on uh, the human responsibility, the revelation that God has given for that time period, and how God is holding mankind accountable for that revelation during that administration. And this is at the uh, what the essence of dispensationalism is. And one of the things I was pleased to hear from so many people uh, from, the, uh, from the Chafer Conference we just had was that they were awakened to the fact that, that most of us have been awakened to. I remember 
realizing, coming to grips with some of this as a student at Dallas Seminary studying dispensationalism, that dispensationalism isn't a time chart. It isn't just a timeline of the plan for the ages. Dispensationalism is a fully orbed theological system that is the result of a consistently applied literal interpretation of Scripture. So to reduce it as it has been in many minds in popularly as simply understanding God's, God's plan for the ages does a tremendous injustice to the concept of and the theology of dispensationalism. There's a lot to unpack here uh, when we talk about uh, dispensationalism and understanding the responsibilities that God places in each one of these periods. And if you don't, if you have something other than administration as the primary idea in the de- definition, you've also failed. There's big debate on this. You can read about it anywhere online. But you're describing a term and not defining it. And what we have to start with is a good definition to understand it rather than simply describing it. And that's, that's hard for, for some words. Love is a notoriously difficult word to define. Most definitions are simply describing characteristics of love. They are not defining or giving the core meaning of the word love. And there's a number of words that we have in English, especially abstract words, that make that difficult. So we have to emphasize this concept of administration because it brings such a load of significance to understanding these uh, these periods of, of time. There are admin- aspects of the administration of God. Now, when we talk about dispensational schemes, I pointed out last time that the Schofieldian idea of seven dispensations has sort of taken root because of the popularity of the Schofield Reference Bible. And for some dispensationalists, that has taken on a a life of its own, an authority of its own, and they really don't want to get away from Schofield's breakdown. But I think there are some areas that we can tweak uh, with, with Schofield's understanding. Schofield was not the final word. In fact, if you look at the development of ideas within dispensationalism, within traditional dispensationalism, there have been uh, notable changes, but they haven't caught the popular view because uh, they don't have a, a vehicle such as the Schofield Reference Bible to promote them. But this is a historical chart that is in Ryrie, Dr. Ryrie's book on dispensationalism, and it shows some, some breakdowns in the periodization of human, human history according to the Bible. Pierre Poiret, who was a Poiret, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, who was a French theologian, said you had the first dispensation as creation to the deluge, creation to the flood, second from the flood to Moses, third from Moses to the prophets, then prophets to Christ. So he broke down, uh, he didn't doesn't have a, uh, Abraham in there at all. He doesn't see uh, really what we would call the age of the law start until Moses. And it's Moses to the prophets and then prophets to Christ. And then he has a period manhood and old age. So he's using sort of a maturity model as he's breaking this down, and then he refers to the ultimate, the final kingdom, 
Paul refers to in Ephesians 1.10 as, as the fullness of times. Here he says it's the renovation of all things. Isaac Watts, who was a premillennialist and also a well-known hymn writer, saw a breakdown at the beginning, a period of innocency. So he sees a clear break between the period before the fall and after the fall, which he identified as the Adamical dispensation. Then the period from uh, the Noahical dispensation from Noah to Abra- uh, Abraham and then from Abraham to Moses. He saw the entire period of the law as one dispensation and then after that just a Christian dispensation. James Hall Brooks is interesting because he was a pastor of a Presbyterian church in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was a mentor to C.I. Schofield. When C.I. Schofield was in St. Louis, he learned much much about dispensationalism from James Hall Brooks, so he did not attend his church. There was certain mentorship there. James Hall Brooks held to a, the, called the first period, the period of Eden, then the antediluvian, which means before the fall, then the patriarchal dispensation from the flood to, to Moses, mosaic dispensation, messian, and then he's one of the few that has, but there are several who had the life of Christ as a separate messi, a separate dispensation, which he identified as the messianic dispensation. Now, that's interesting because some of us have been exposed to others who have taught, and I believe that there is a biblical defense for it, but we have to understand why. You can't just say, well, it's distinct, it's unique, so it ought to be. There needs to be a solid theological rationale for why you break these periods the way we do. And that's what I'll show as we go through this, that you don't just come in and say, well, because there something changed here or there, uh, or there's a major figure that that should be a dispensation. There needs to be a specific reason for that. And I think Schofield provided that with his concept that there is a new revelation, there's a, uh, a responsibility given, that a test that's in relation to that responsibility, a failure, and then uh, a shift takes place with new revelation. That provides a very solid paradigm for identifying why you're making your period shift, your dispensational shift, the administration shift at each time. And I think on that basis, you can we can see, and we'll see it when we get there, that the age of the uh, that the sort of messianic dispensation, the first advent, is distinct and unique for a number of reasons. Okay, the. Last one is Schofield's breakdown, innocence, conscience, and human government, then promise. This would be from Abraham to Moses, the dispensation of the law, the dispensation of grace, and the dispensation of the kingdom. So the question that we really need to address is how does God advance the dispensations? How do we know when we've gone from one dispensation to another, looking at it through the lens of Scripture? What are the keys to being able to address that question? And I believe that the key is understanding a covenant, that, not, that, that covenants are a form of divine revelation which spell out specific responsibilities to the human race as well as 
spell, spelling out certain consequences for failure. Now, those aren't present in every covenant. But when there's a covenant, a new covenant that is given, then that covenant has new revelation and new accountability. This is why uh, you can't, we'll look at ages a little later on, this is why an age is not a dispensation because when we look at the broad time periods that have certain similar features, such as the age of the Gentiles when every God is working through the entire human race between creation and the tower of, uh, and the call of Abraham, rather. Uh, that's the age of the Gentiles. But you don't necessarily, you, you have numerous things that shift inside that age, and that's why the dispensation has to be narrower than an age. But at sometimes, the, as I pointed out last time, an age is basically identi- identical with the, with the dispensation. For example, uh, some people will refer to the church age as the age of grace, and there's debate whether it's the church age and the dispensation of grace or the other way around. But whatever, they're they're are they're identical. They they started at the day it started at the day of Pentecost, ends at the rapture, and this time period we'll look at the characteristics later on. So what moves history in terms of divine revelation? has to do with the concept of covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a form of a contract. It's not identical to a contract. There's a little bit of a difference between a covenant and a contract, but they're, they're, they're similar in that they are legal documents where one party binds, is bound to another party in a legal agreement. And so we define a, a, a covenant as a contract between God, who's the party of the first part. All the biblical covenants are described in Scripture. God initiates the covenant, and he makes a sovereign dispos, uh, disposition, obligating himself in grace to bless man, who's the party of the second part. What that, that means is God is willing to limit himself to a written or verbal contract with man in terms of what God is going to do for the human race under that contract. And so that God obligates himself and is willing to bind himself to that contractual agreement. He is not operating uh, just in a uh, willy-nilly sort of fashion, which is what you have in every other Religion, no other world religion has God binding himself in an legal agreement of this nature to the human race. Now, when we look at the covenants, <clears throat> there are uh, t- uh, three covenants between God and the Gentiles. There's the Adamic covenant, which I... Uh, or excuse me, the Edenic covenant, which because Edenic and Adamic sound a lot alike, I've gotten to where I refer to the Edenic covenant more as the creation covenant. This is, uh, I, I believe that there's a, a close similarity or modification of that original creation covenant after the fall, which we call the Adamic covenant, and then again after the uh, judgment of God at the flood, which we call the Noahic covenant. 
and the Noahic covenant is still in effect and is in effect until God creates the new heavens and the new earth. So they're closely related, although there's clear modification of the covenant because of the impact of sin on the human race. And then there are five covenants between God and Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian or land covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and for some reason it dropped off the last line, and the new covenant. The passage for the Davidic covenant is 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, as well as Psalm 89, 20 to 37. And the new covenant is, uh, give, is described in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. So let me put this up in terms of a chart, in terms of what I've just said. We start with the Gentile covenants. There's the creation covenant that is spelled out in Genesis 1, 27 to 28. I think there are also elements of it in Genesis 2 as well. But it's clear that the language that God uses is language that becomes part of covenant language later on in Scripture, even though the word covenant is not used there. We'll get into this a little later on to, to show why I believe this is a covenant. Uh, it is clearly a, a covenant that takes place. This covenant ends with the fall brings a totally new set of circumstances to the human race and to creation, and therefore the original covenant has to be modified to meet the new circumstances, the new realities brought about by sin. That revision of the original creation covenant we call the Adamic covenant, that's described in Genesis three fourteen through 19. That is the primary governing document until the flood occurs. And after the flood, the earth goes into another stage of deterioration due to the uh, corruption of sin. And God modifies the covenant again. And we refer to this as the Noahic covenant given in Genesis 9, 1 through 7. And the Noahic covenant is in effect until the... Uh, the new heavens and the new earth. So every time you see a rainbow, it's a reminder that the, that the uh, Noahic covenant is still in effect and all of the provisions of the Noahic covenant are still in effect. So we have these three Gentile covenants. Then there are five covenants that are between God and Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian or land covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. I don't like the term Palestinian Covenant because from the time that Schofield wrote in the early dispensationalists in the 19th century when Palestine was a synonym for Israel, uh, the term Palestine has been co-opted by the uh, Arab population after Arafat uh, uh, turned the term over to the Arab inhabitants of of Israel. And so it has a different uh, meaning today than it did a hundred years ago. So it's better to refer to this as the land covenant. Sometimes I call it the real estate covenant when God promises a specific piece of real estate to Israel. Then there's the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant to Israel. Of these covenants, we usually talk about them, and we'll get, I'll describe these terms a little more in a minute as conditional versus unconditional, that the Mosaic Covenant's a conditional covenant and the other covenants are unconditional. That's an important concept. That's traditional terminology. 
I think that, especially when you look at Hebrews 8, which develops the, the application of the new covenant to the church, the point that the writer of, of, uh, of Hebrews is making is that the new covenant it, it replaces the Mosaic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant was never intended to be a permanent covenant. That's why the new covenant was given as to replace what was always intended to be a temporary covenant. So it seems from the, from the theology of Hebrews that the emphasis that God has on in distinguishing these two types of covenants is the, more the idea of temporary versus permanent because there are conditions even within so-called unconditional covenants. Uh, but they, the covenant itself and the existence of the covenant isn't conditioned upon, uh, upon the obedience of Israel. So a little more technically accurate term is really temporary versus permanent. Now, these Jewish covenants, there are five. The unconditional or permanent covenants are grounded on the Abrahamic covenant. And there are four of these, the Abrahamic covenant, which promised to Israel a specific piece of land that a specific blessing through the seed or descendants of Abraham and worldwide blessing. Each of those three elements was then expanded on in subsequent covenants so that the land promise is expanded in the land covenant or the real estate covenant of Deuteronomy 30. The Davidic covenant is expanded on I mean, the seed promise is expanded on in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the promise of worldwide blessing is expanded in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Those are permanent covenants that God promised that are, are that come to the, uh, the, the blessing comes to the entire human race as mediated through Israel. From Genesis 1 through Genesis 11, God is working exclusively through all human beings, all the Gentiles. But he limits himself, starting with the call of Abraham, to work through the entire human race and bless them through Abraham and his descendants. The one temporary or conditional covenant is the Mosaic covenant as described in Exodus 20 through 40, as well as other passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So that's the breakdown of the covenants. Each, each time God modifies the covenant or gives some new revelation, there is a shift in terms of the dispensation. So now let's talk about these two, two, two terms. First of all, any questions at this point? Anybody send in any questions, want any clarification? Bryce has been sitting there engrossed in learning and... No, watch, no questions. Okay, anybody else have any questions? Okay. Now we have the two, two terms, conditional covenant and unconditional covenant. In a, con, in a temporary or conditional covenant, this is where uh, there is a proposal of God whereby he promises in a conditional compact with man by the formula, uh, if you will, to grant special blessings to men, providing he fulfills certain conditions. God says, basically, if you're obedient, then I will bless you. 
And this is what's seen in the, in the Mosaic Covenant. If they, if Israel fulfills the Mosaic Covenant, then God will keep them in the land and God will bless them. But if they are disobedient to the covenant, God will remove them from the land. Those conditions also sort of relate to the Abrahamic Covenant because God promised Israel the land unconditionally, but they can't live in the land unless they're spiritually obedient. So there's an implied condition there. If they're disobedient, God's not going to cancel the Abrahamic covenant, but they're not going to benefit from it because God's not going to let a spiritually rebellious people live in the land. So that's sort of how the Abrahamic covenant will, will connect to the, to the uh, or the Mosaic covenant will connect with the Abrahamic covenant. But there's a temporary nature there. That's what the writer of, Hebrew brings, writer of Hebrews brings out, is that God never intended the Mosaic Covenant to last forever. It was just a temporary uh, law code for Israel until the Messiah came to fulfill it. So the permanent and or unconditional covenant is when God, by a sovereign act, establishes an unconditional contract with God, with man, or he declares this in the sense that that announcing to Abraham, I will do this. And it's not at all conditioned on Abraham's response. In fact, in the covenant ceremony with Abraham, uh, it was typical or traditional in the ancient Near East that when you were signing a serious treaty like this or contract, you would have your sacrificial animals split them in half lay the, the halves of the carcass on each side of a path, and the two contracting parties to the, to the covenant would walk between the halves of the sacrifice, indicating they are both bound by that covenant to, to bring it to pass. When Abraham and God were, God was establishing this contract with Abraham, he caused a deep sleep to fall on Abraham so that God, symbolized by a by a torch, a smoking torch that passed alone between the sacrifices, the halves of the animals, that that indicated that God alone was binding himself to that contract and he was going to provide, make sure that that contract would be fulfilled so that the Abrahamic covenant becomes an eternally bound promise of God to the Jewish people. And that means that God is going to fulfill, ultimately he will fulfill every aspect of that covenant regardless of how the recipient responds. The existence of that contract is not dependent on the behavior of the second party of the human party. And so the Jewish covenants are all unconditional and God will ultimately fulfill them, all unconditional except for the Mosaic covenant. So... Now, this came from an earlier slide, but they're really the only covenant that's, that's conditional. Some, some dispensations say the Edenic covenant is conditional because God would bless them. They would have eternal life within the, within Eden as long as they were obedient. And once they were disobedient, then they were out of the garden. So that, I, I can understand that as being a conditional covenant. Usually we don't talk about the concepts of conditional or unconditional with the Gentile covenants. They are connected to one another, as we'll see, and they govern how man is to operate under God's authority in relation to the creation. 
So we can we can say that the Edenic covenant, the creation covenant, is is conditional in some sense, more so than the others. And the Mosaic covenant is clearly conditional or temporary, but the unconditional covenants that continue are the Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, the land covenant, and the Davidic, and the new covenant. So, just looking at the covenants with Israel, what do we say? What can we say about the nature of these permanent? covenants with with Israel. Well, first of all, they're understood as literal covenants. They're not to be spiritualized. They're not to be allegorized in some sort of sense where the terms of the covenant no longer refer to the literal physical statements. What I mean by that is that when God promises a land to Abraham and his descendants that is bordered by the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, the river of Egypt, the river Euphrates, that that doesn't get transferred in the church age to be a, an allusion to heaven. If you read Genesis chapter 15, you can't get out of that, that those dimensions that God gives to Abraham for the land that he promised, that God's really just talking about heaven here. It's, it's a literal interpretation means he, God is talking about a literal piece of real estate. But in covenant theology, what they will say is because Israel broke God's law and Israel rejected the Messiah, then that land that's bordered by the river of Egypt, the, the Great Sea, and the river Euphrates, that no longer applies. That piece of real estate is no longer promised to Israel and that promise is now becomes a spiritual promise to the church then they and it, it refers to our heavenly destiny so that you have phrases like the the promised land now in the old testament become allegorized to relate to heaven crossing into the promised land would then be allegorized to mean crossing into heaven so that crossing the Jordan River becomes allegorized as death and being transferred to heaven. And if you listen to some old Negro spirituals, then that's what you're hearing when it talks about crossing over the river. You're going into heaven. They've taken a spiritualized promise. And there was a lot of influence from Presbyterian covenant theology in the South during the time prior to the American uh, uh, war between the states because in the late, mid to late uh, 1700s, there was in, an enormous migration of Scots-Irish Presbyterians across the Atlantic Ocean, and they primarily went to the South. There were a number that went North, but the vast majority of them went into the South, went into the Carolinas, went into Georgia, uh, Tennessee, Alabama. Uh, you know, most of my ancestry was part of that migration, and they were all uh, influenced by covenant theology. In fact, uh, I ran across a genealogy that was done on, on my family on, going up through my father's side and his, his mother's side. And I had never seen this before, and this was done during the 30s and 40s, and all of these people are just Scots-Irish Presbyterians, and their names are that way. In fact, I've got one ancestor who was imprisoned by the British along with Andrew Jackson back uh, during the time of the American Revolution, and that, that's what they were. But I got into one side of this family, 
And there were seminary presidents and theologians and, and Presbyterian pastors. I mean, it just, the, the fruit on the tree was just, just about to kill the tree with all these, all these, uh, Presbyterian pastors on this one side going up through the, um, going up through the period of World War II. A number of them became chaplains in the Marine Corps and in the Navy. It was just almost exclusively a Navy and Marine Corps type, uh, military service. In fact, on that side, it also went back to a guy who was a, one of the first Marines. He enlisted in the Marines in the first six months we had a Marine Corps. And then after the American War for Independence, he went to seminary, went to Princeton. Before it was Princeton, it was the old Log College still. And then he became the first chaplain in the United States Navy. So there's a rich heritage there, but that influenced a lot of this, the, these, these Negro spirituals. You had people like Stonewall Jackson, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, who was from Virginia, and he was a, a profoundly uh, committed Calvinist and covenant, covenant, covenant theologian in his, own, in his thinking. And he would spend every Sunday afternoon uh, teaching the Bible to a group of slaves. And since they didn't have watches, they weren't always on time. And in order to teach them time discipline, uh, Jackson would lock the door of the church promptly at 3 o'clock so that if they did, weren't there on time, they couldn't get in. And he would teach them the Bible from a covenant perspective. His chief of staff during the um, uh, Civil War was uh, Robert Louis Dabney, who later became a founder of the Austin Presbyterian Seminary and is known as one of the uh, greatest Southern Presbyterian theologians. So this, co these covenant ideas, the spiritualization and allegorization of the, uh, of the Old Testament was very popular, especially in, in the South. So that's what they would do. I, I remember years ago, now, when I was first up at Preston City, I went to an Evangelical Theological Society meeting in, in Boston. And I, I kind of, it was, it was one of those moments when you actually become the fly on the wall. And Elliot Johnson, who was a speaker at the last, uh, at the last Schaefer conference, and Ed Bloom, who was one of my um, favorite professors, he had pastored Bethel Independent Presbyterian here. I didn't always agree with Ed, but he made me think. And those were my favorite pa uh, professors at Dallas were the ones who made you think. And Ed Bloom were standing there. And Bruce Waltke came over. Now, Waltke was one of the great names for Old Testament theology at Dallas. He was Charlie Clough's mentor when uh, Charlie went through seminary and, and uh, Dr. Waltke was the head of the Old Testament department. But after he left Dallas, he sort of, he, he was like a chameleon. Every school he went to, he became uh, influenced by their theological system and he kind of morphed over a period of five years from being a dispensationalist to being a five-point Calvinist and holding to covenant theology. And these guys had all been through seminary together back in the early 60s and they were close friends and allies when they were on the faculty at Dallas. So it was really interesting because I had just gone over to talk to Ed and to Dr. Johnson. So I was standing there when Dr. Waltke came over and I'm just like the fly on the wall and they were sort of joking with each other. And Elliot said, well, are you still mistranslating 
the Old Testament thinking that the land God promised to Israel is heaven. And Waltke said, well, of course it is. And, and uh, Ed Bloom said, you need to go read Romans 9 again. So it was interesting to see that little banter between them. But that shows that this is real. This is what's out there that you run into a lot of people from who are influenced by covenant theology. They no longer interpret those passages in the Old Testament and those covenants in a literal manner. second thing we observe with these permanent covenants is that they're eternal. They carry their results into eternity itself. So in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a new Jerusalem there will still be a destiny for Israel that is distinct from the destiny of the church. Now, much later on in this series, we'll talk some about progressive dispensationalism, but one of the ideas that came out of early dispensationalism and was still held by traditional dispensationalists is that there's an eternal destiny for the church that's different from the eternal destiny to Israel. And in, in, in the new progressive dispensationalism, all the people of God just sort of merge together uh, sometime after the millennium. So their covenants, they maintain those distinctives. They go on for eternity. Third thing that we note is that the permanent covenants with Israel are unconditional, though they do contain certain conditions within them for, uh, for experiencing the blessings promised. They are not conditions related to uh, God's promise. They do not bind God or condition God's ultimate blessing. God will fulfill his promise, promises and that's not dependent upon Israel's response. A fourth observation is that these covenants are made with a covenant people with Israel. They are not made with the church. They're made with a distinct group. So that when you come to the new covenant and says, I make this covenant, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, you can't say once Jesus comes that now that applies to that, that, that the church becomes a covenant partner. The church will benefit, as we see, from the new covenant, but God didn't make a new covenant with the church. You don't have that language. Now, there are some verses here that are important to understand about the permanence of these covenants with Israel. For example, in Romans 9, 4, uh, Paul describes the Israelites as those to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. That in the church age, Paul writes that these covenants still belong to Israel. God has not negated his covenants to Israel because they rejected Christ as the Messiah. Again, in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, the Ephesians were mostly Gentiles, there were Gentiles in the flesh, you who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that is the Jews who were uh, emphasizing their relation to Moses, uh, you who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you, that is you Gentiles, were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Those covenants of promise, that refers to the Abrahamic promise, the the uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, they're strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. So these covenant promises 
are with Israel and they are made with Israel and those promises do not get transferred to any other uh, to any other group. So finally, the principle of the timing of the provisions that the covenant could be made at a certain point in time, but that doesn't mean that every feature of the covenant would go into effect at that time. The Davidic covenant, for example, is made with David, but the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant is, and the fulfillment of that covenant occurs when the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom. The new covenant was given in Jeremiah or described in Jeremiah 31. It, the sacrifice that establishes that covenant is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, but it doesn't begin the new covenant. The new covenant doesn't begin until Jesus returns at the second coming and establishes the messianic rule because that is our destiny to participate in the messianic kingdom and the new covenant and to be blessed by that. Paul says we're ministers of the new covenant today not because we're in the new covenant, but because by proclaiming the gospel, the people who respond to the gospel will be secured a place and a role and a position in the new covenant uh, when it is established. So in that sense, we're ministers of the new covenant, but that's still a future concept. It doesn't mean the new covenant is in effect uh, today. So in some of these covenants, Some provisions go into effect immediately. For example, with the Abrahamic covenant, some provisions went into effect immediately. And remember in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, God promised that there would be a 400-year period period of enslavement in Egypt, and that didn't come about until a couple of hundred years after the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. So just because the covenant goes into effect doesn't mean all of its provisions immediately went into effect. Uh, the other, the last thing about covenants is that some covenants become the basis for a new dispensation when they go into effect, not necessarily when they are announced. The Davidic covenant and the land covenant and the new covenant don't really go into effect until the Messiah returns. So they did, that's why they don't start new dispensations. The Abrahamic covenant started a new dispensation. The Mosaic covenant started a new, new dispensation. But the other three covenants, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, don't go into effect until the uh, Jesus returns. And, of course, that's the basis for the new and final dispensation, the age of the Messiah. Mentioning the age of the Messiah, that takes us to the next concept, which is understanding the ages of human history in contrast to dispensations. Anybody have any questions? You got one? Okay. We have uh, Nina in New York asks, with technical terms such as rapture and trinity, we have an advantage over the Apostle Paul who was not able to frame his understanding with these terms. Is the same thing true with uh, when we speak of dispensationalism, yeah, I think so. I think we, we there's clearly what what theologians call development of doctrine, which really means just our development of understanding of doctrine, and um, uh, so that that while Paul understood, and and I believe that the writers of Scripture understood more than than what we know that they understood. For example, when you read Genesis, you don't get any idea that that 
Abraham understands the doctrine of resurrection at all. But in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews says Abraham had full confidence when he was going to sacrifice Isaac because he knew that God would raise him from the dead. But you you can read Genesis 22 all day long, and you never get that out of Genesis 22. So it's obvious that the writers of Scripture and these heroes of the Old Testament knew a lot more than what the Old Testament uh, tells us. And I think that the Apostle Paul knew more than what is revealed in Scripture. And why he can say what he says is because he understands this broader framework. Uh, but but he doesn't have the terminology clearly. We understand the, tr- the Trinity better than Paul did because he didn't have a term for it. We understand the hypostatic union better than Paul did because he didn't have a term for it, and vocabulary is important, and that's how God wants us to go through that. So, yeah, I think we have a much better, clearer understanding on on the details of Scripture because we've been thinking about it longer longer than they did. That's not to say that what they knew and understood was wrong. It just that they, it wasn't as fully developed as what we understand today. Okay. Anything else? She has a follow-up. Okay. Uh, All dispensationalists are pre-mills, but not all pre-mills are dispensationalists. Right. Can you provide an example of this? What is the covenant theologian's view of the millennium? Okay, in covenant theology, you, they're, they're primarily a mill, they are, are post mill, but you do have some. Uh, and I'm not sure that it's it's not covenant theology. It's a different system, uh, sort of a hybrid. Uh, but there's a view called historic premillennialism, and uh, an example of that is there's a group called the International. They founded founded the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem. And these are people who are very pro-Israel. They believe that God is, they're, they're premillennial. God is going to fulfill all of his promises to, to Israel, literally. But they write all this anti-dispensational stuff. They really don't like dispensationalists. But they're premillennial and they're pro-Israel and they interpret all of the prophecies, all the covenants, literally. That's his, known as historic premillennialism. And, um, and there's some other differences to that, but that, that's, that's a quick answer. Okay. All right, let's look at ages. The term age, as we're going to use it, is an era or an epoch of time marked by certain boundaries or occurrences where there's a definite fixed period of time. Scripture uses the term ages uh, numerous times, whereas a dispensation is an administration within an age. A dispensation is an administration within an age. There are certain features that bind an age together. For example, in the first age, which is the age of the Gentiles, God is working through all the Gentile people. There's no no distinction between Jew and Gentile. But there's three covenants given that change how God is administering history, which is why we can't just say, well, we're going to call it an age of Israel, an age of the Gentiles, age of Israel, and leave it at that. There are clear administrative shifts that take place in Genesis 3 and again in Genesis 9. That's what demarcates these as dispensations, as subdivisions of an age. Same thing with the age of Israel. There is a massive shift that occurs in Genesis chapter 12. 
God is no longer going to work only or exclusively, I mean, excuse me, God is no longer going to work broadly with the entire human race. They failed uh, before the flood. They fail again at the Tower of Babel. From that, from Genesis 12 on, God is going to work exclusively through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, how many people knew that? When God called Abraham out of Ur, how many other people in the world knew that there was a shift in how God was dealing with the human race? No one. But the shift has nevertheless occurred objectively and historically. God, from that point on, was just going to work through Abraham. But not everybody knew it. You see that same kind of a transition period that occurred at the beginning of Acts. When we just studied Acts, we saw that, that how many uh, Old Testament-type saints, believers in, in the coming of the Messiah, Jewish believers in the coming of the Messiah, who were living in Rome or living in Spain or living in North Africa or living in uh, Babylon, who were believers in the Messiah just like uh, you have with... Um, uh, the prophet, what was it, Simon, in, that's not his name, in Luke chapter 2, um, that, that they were believers in the Old Testament Messiah. But J- Jesus came and died in A.D. 33. How many of them knew? They didn't have Internet. They didn't have Telegraph. They didn't have even the Pony Express. And so if they died two, three, four, five years after Jesus died on the cross, they would not have heard that everything's shifted now. The church started. They, they were living in that kind of a transition period. But nevertheless, there was a, a shift that occurred. So, you know, they, they're caught in that transition period. So, anyhow, we're talking about age versus dispensation. And the first age is the age of the Gentiles. This is covered in Genesis 1 through 11. And it covers three dispensations, the dispensation of innocence. And innocence is a great term to use. There are two different meanings to innocent. One is sort of a someone who is naive, someone who is easily taken advantage of, someone who is uh, young, but it has a legal concept. And remember, the Bible is built around the concept of law. Justification is a legal concept. Righteousness is a legal concept. Prior to the fall, man is legally innocent. He is not guilty of sin. He's not just not guilty, he is innocent. So this is a good term to use for the first dispensation. It fits the legal structure of, of the Scripture. So that's from Genesis 1.28, the creation of man, to Genesis 3.8, which is when they fall. That begins a new dispensation, the dispensation of conscience. Now, I've never been real happy with that term, the dispensation of conscience or human conscience, but that's the term that's been used, and so I'll leave that alone for right now. This covers the uh, scriptural period from Genesis 3.9 to the flood, Genesis 8.14. Then we have the dispensation of human government, which begins Genesis 8:15. The real foundational document is is the uh, giving of the new giving of the uh, Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter nine. So those three dispensations are dispensations because there's new revelation given, there's new responsibility given, there's a new test given. The the way God is administering human history shifts based on that new revelation. But what it has in common is that God is working through the entirety of the human race. 
It has certain characteristics. There's one language throughout all the human race. There's one race. They still didn't get along, which shows that, that unification of the human race is not a solution to the problem because the problem isn't communication. The problem is sin. But ever since the Tower of Babel, man has tried to identify the problem as communication, and that's a real problem. Anybody who's been on the mission field and tried to communicate to the gospel to somebody who's in another culture with another language knows how difficult the language barrier is, and a lot of problems can be solved if we just spoke the same language. But it doesn't solve the real problem in the human race, which is sin. Uh, In the uh, age of the Gentiles, salvation is by faith in the promised messianic seed, which is we know is Jesus Christ. They didn't know the name, but the salvation looks forward to the promise of the uh, seed of the woman who will provide redemption for mankind. There's uh, no distinct uh, administrative entity in the age. There are in the dispensations, but not in the age. That's why that's the difference between an age and a um, an age and a dispensation. Six, the divine institutions are all developed in the age of the Gentiles. All five divine institutions are developed and they're attacked by Satan. So that brings in the angelic conflict aspect. Now, I'm going to stop there because the hour's up, and the next thing I'm going to topic I'm going to cover is an introduction to the divine institutions. And I think I'm going to wait and bring in one other aspect before we go further, and that is relate the angelic conflict uh, to the dispensations before I get into uh, the... Uh, uh, divine institutions. So this is one of the things that I'm doing is I'm bringing in, trying to connect all these dots for us as we go through the ages and the dispensations, connecting the angelic conflict because that's significant to di- uh, to, the, to dispensational theology and also connecting uh, the, uh, the, the divine institutions. Just on a note, we live in a world today when not everybody really gets it. I have a... Uh, uh, a man who participates in my Friday morning pastors group. He's uh, he's uh, well, I think he's a little bit older than I am. Has a background: retired military, retired uh, pilot, calm disposition, and he's been going to a seminary. I'm not going to mention the name, and he's t- and, and sitting in some lectures on Isaiah. And the professor is teaching that Isaiah 14 has nothing at all whatsoever to do with the fall of Satan. And this is a this is a very well-known dispensationalist. Not only does, and, and, and so this is not uncommon. Uh, it is it is common today. It was uncommon 30 years ago and before because traditional historical dispensationalists all related the dispensations to the fall of Satan. You go back and you read Ryrie, you read Clarence Larkin, you read Schofield, you read Chafer, you read Talbot, you read all of these guys. They all start with the fall of Satan. Uh, but now that you have people who are who um, have bought into a false hermeneutic on Isaiah 14 and sometimes Ezekiel 28, that these are not referring to the fall of Satan, all of a sudden you 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 do the same. You create the same problem. In, that you have in covenant theology, you divorce 
the message of the Bible and the overall understanding of God's plan and purpose from a whole segment of God's creatures, which are the angels. And this is a, a really serious problem, and it shows it just, you know, everything seems to be sort of falling apart and fragmenting in our culture, including theology. So, um, and that's because, that's a point of contention. So I just thought you would, you should be aware that these are all battlefields. Almost every point I'm teaching is being contested by somebody today. It's just a crazy world out there. Anyway, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study, to think through uh, the aspect of dispensations again, to begin to work our way through uh, how you work through the Old Testament and the different ages and dispensations and to come to understand that all of human history has a plan and a purpose. You're administering human history for a purpose in order to teach certain key principles through the experiment or the laboratory of human volition. And, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand that, that it might make the Bible come alive for us in a new and fresh way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.